I guess it's quite radical in the sense that there's a wonderful side which is nearly, it works nearly on a three-year circle. And you've got one year where you're pretty much by yourself writing and eating, you know, food for the brain and, and just reading and, and maybe going out a tiny bit to go to museums and stuff, but really kind of taking it all in. Then there's a year where you start mingling with other people because you're starting to look for, yeah, all the wonderful people or not that you're going to be able to work with. And so you become slightly more social. And that year normally ends with the release of the album, suddenly extremely social, doing lots of press all day long and, and meeting loads of people. And then the third year is on the roads and, and on tour where suddenly you're living with 10 people in a bus. So you get to a, a kind of high level of no intimacy whatsoever. And the wonderful thrill of being on stage and meeting people and, and a kind of generosity of, of giving all that you can and receiving lots of love. And, and, and then back to square one back to being by yourself in the house reading and writing and so it's a it's a funny kind of three-year circle so you really have to set aside time to do the writing it's not something you can do on the road do you keep journals i keep journals and and i tend to start writing on the road just to have a starting point to not have that terrifying moment where already, you know, you, you get into, especially that this year it's going to change, but I used to release albums every time in October, November, which meant that I would end touring with the summer festivals. So you do start believing that you're someone really, really important when you've got 60,000 people singing along with you and screaming your name. So when you go back home, the level of loneliness is insane. You kind of walk around the street thinking, why are people not clapping? <laughs> why are they not all screaming my name? And so you get a massive down from from that but joke put aside it's it's good to have a starting point otherwise it's funny because you never really understand how you do write a song and so you tend to forget and suddenly if you haven't got one coming naturally you get terrified by the idea of of thinking what can I do now have I already done this is this starting to become like um, some an automatic thing that is maybe lacking emotion or you know lacking reality so and at the same time you can't really force yourself to write a song that would be absurd also but um, a cousin of mine who's a who's a, a singer-songwriter also said to me you know if if you write a song and force yourself to just write a song and allow yourself that it might be a really bad song, but at least you're just getting back to the process. It's a good way of, of putting your foot back in and to try and take the pressure away. But otherwise, it's, and I'm lucky that I have a variety of jobs. So often, once the tour is over, I find something else to, to bounce back. So for this album, I was, I took six months to, um, to do a book of drawings and suddenly I was drawing all day long. And so picking up the guitar suddenly was like holidays and there was something with no more pressure whatsoever. And, uh, so it's their deals that you do with yourself to try and constantly be in motion and, uh, and never feel like you're doing it because you have to do it. Are you able to put one of those things in the background when you move on to another project? Or are the, are the wheels kind of spinning on everything all at the same time? Well, I've, I, it's true that I, it, it all has to do with observation one way or another. And, and sometimes I guess that um, the freedom there is when I draw, for example, is that you really don't need anything. I mean, apart from, from you know, paper and a pen, you're absolutely free. Whereas It's a little terrifying, though. 
it is, but there's something beautiful about just um, nearly forgetting about yourself. You're just observing and you're just trying to be as precise as possible in between, especially that I do observations drawing. So it hasn't got to do with imagination that much. It has to do with trying to perfectly log on um, to something. And so the drawing helps and often uh, it brings me back to music. And I find, and maybe it's a bit strange, but that it's all absolutely connected. I mean, it gets to an abstraction where, uh, you know, writing a word is a drawing in a strange way. And then a drawing is rhythm and a rhythm is music. And so you kind of, I find a way of of, of spin it, spinning it always together. And then there's um, the theatre, which I, which sometimes I go back to either performing. Um, I love doing what they call in France lectures. So I, I love reading and I read to people. So that's also something that's very nice because suddenly I'm just into the passion of, a, of an author and just reading to a very sweet audience who, who likes to have people reading books to them. And so all of that navigates one through the other, I find. In terms of actually doing music in earnest, though, that's something you came to a little bit later. Absolutely. What was the motivation there? I think that I was, um, I was raised um, by... My father and mother, obviously, but my, my father's a director and, and he's a writer and director and editor. And when I wanted to become an actress when I was a teenager, he was very worried by the idea that the one thing he associated to actors, um, even if he loves actors very much, but he was terrified by the idea of people waiting. And always said to me that there was nothing less attractive than people waiting, waiting for a phone call, waiting for a role, waiting. So, so he always said to me, just do stuff that you can do by yourself. Just in terms of the downtime between Absolutely. projects. And so I used to travel on sets always with a notepad with me, always writing, always reading and always drawing. And then at one point I picked up a guitar when I was around 20 and and I guess to calm down the end of the day when you spent your day saying other people's words and being in someone else's rhythm and being the tool for someone else's creativity, I needed to own myself. So I would lock myself up in, in my hotel rooms and just do songs and just for me. And then it took over and then I would do songs and, and other actors or actresses would hear about them and ask me to come and sing in their room. And then the crew would ask me to come and sing at the end of, you know, when we would do parties at the end of the week. And, and the more it went, the more suddenly music came out of my bedroom. It's an interesting turn of phrase. It took over. Yeah. So and I didn't see it coming. There was a point when that just became the thing that you wanted to do. Absolutely. And then life being, being, I had a child when I was, when I was very young. So I was often at home and again, playing the guitar and writing songs and writing songs and then doing less and less movies, doing modeling, which helped me to, to survive in a, in, a, in an economic point of view, which gave me even more time. You know, without realizing, suddenly when I was 27, I realized that I was spending all my days doing music and drawing and that when my agent would call to go to a casting, I would start lying and saying that I that I couldn't because I had other stuff to do. And, uh, and then one day a producer knocked on my door because he'd heard that I was, that I was doing songs. For a couple of years, he came and listened to the songs once every month and then once every week. And at the end of two years, he managed to drag me in a, in a studio and I recorded my first demos. And then weirdly enough, that was it. That was suddenly my life. Does it lose some of that initial pleasure when it becomes your profession? Actually, not in the sense that it's true that um, drawing you can do by yourself. And if you 
if people are into it or not is is very secondary. It doesn't really count that much. Music is a strange thing because it's true that there is a limit to writing songs just for yourself. It has to do with generosity and it has to do with being heard. I guess maybe like movies, you know, directors want their movies to be seen. Otherwise, it, it kind of takes a bit of the thrill away. So actually to have an audience now and to have an expectation from the audience and to have people in the street when I'm not releasing an album saying, when's the album coming out? When's the next album coming out? Is actually really, really nice. And it can be a motivation. It's not the only motivation. But um, no, I, I'm I'm very glad that there's a, that there's an excitement on front. Did the performative aspect come naturally to you? I mean, obviously, you know, you've been on stage quite a bit, but not, not just playing music, but playing your own songs is very different. And you're vulnerable in a way that you aren't with acting because, you know, as you said, these are your own words and thoughts yeah. and feelings. Yeah, really. It, I, I'm, I'm not a good example in, 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 in music because all of this was very, very strange. When I released the first single, you know, I thought being very French, you know, that's that's done and over with. They will either not care it's sort or... Sort of an existential... Uh... Yeah, I thought, you know, okay, the album's there. I'll be able to tell my grandkids that yeah. I did an album once and end of story. And then, funny enough, the press and, and the French music industry were very cautious because there had been many actresses slash models bringing out albums that didn't work out well. People kind of waited to see what would happen. And the luck was that in two weeks, the album went gold because actual people were buying it and, and not uh, Parisians or not kind of the industry or, or, or that kind of aspect. So no one had planned that I would go touring. Everyone was kind of waiting. It was a bit like this French game of, you know, holding chins and, and seeing who's the first to react. So suddenly after a month, I was being played on the radio because the audience would call up the radio saying, we want to hear mm. Lou songs. And so very quickly, they said, well, okay, let's find a venue. The album had been out for about two months. And so the first venue was a, a little place called La Flèche d'Or, which is a 300 or 400 seats, well, not seats standing, actually. And, and the first gig in my life was filled up. And when I got on stage wondering what the hell I was doing there, the audience already knew the lyrics and people were singing along. So suddenly it didn't feel like having to, to start, you know, in, in bars and pubs and trying to get someone to listen to you. I had 400 people just waiting <laughs> who were already there to kind of support me in a way. So then just dates kept on adding and, and it was a very royal road in a strange way. Those early struggle days that most musicians have, that's where you learn to be a performer. I guess in the, in the, um, in all of the struggle as an actress, in all of the... I did two years of touring, um, doing a strange one-woman show, um, which was hard, and where I didn't have an audience, and where I had to fight every night. And so for sure that all of that helped me to be able to, to be on stage, that's for sure, because my band were quite impressed just by the fact that I could have a relation to the audience. But that came from the theatre, for sure. And it was actually much more relaxing for me to, to go on stage with my songs that I could potentially destroy as opposed to the year before being on stage with the Samuel Beckett play, where there you get very worried at the idea of, you know, screwing up Beckett, whereas screwing up my own songs, you know, I, I can live with that. The external expectations perhaps weren't there, you know, there, it sounds like there was some suggestion that it almost might be a novelty act, you coming in as an actress and a, and a model. How seriously did you take it on that first record going from, you know, playing in your bedroom to recording an album? Was this something that you thought could be a career for you? 
Well, it was very strange because I guess that it, it, it was a very good uh, life lesson in the sense that since I was 15, I kind of, I've never been a great planner, but I kind of, I wanted the roles, you know, that I went for and, and I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to be a theatre actress and, and the music, I didn't see it coming and, 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 and in a way I put on a persona to, to be an actress, whereas the music came from the, the most honest, truthful and broken side of me it came from a very very intimate side so what, what do you mean by broken it's an album that i wrote not ever thinking that it would ever be heard mm. there were songs that i would write at home because there were things you revealed that you wouldn't yeah. have yeah and i and it was survival i mm. it was the the most precious thing apart from my child it was the most precious thing about me and it came as a as a great surprise that you know it's like sending out intentions and none of them work out and the one thing on which you put no intention whatsoever where you're so tired by life i was you know at 30 years old in this weird industry of women you're an old actress at 30 and you haven't if you haven't made it at 30 you're out you're a very old model at 30 so i was i was a granny it was over for me. All my careers were, were dead. And that's where the songs were coming from. It was coming from a place where I was just going to go and live in the countryside. And, and I was out and disposable in a way. So when suddenly that's what mm. revealed me and that suddenly that became the thing that people loved me for or wanted me to be doing, it's a very weird kind of Buddhist lesson that, you know, it's what you do without thinking and yeah. what you do that is the most honest and what you do not planning a result that is maybe going to be the one thing that you were meant to be, in a way. So you go back into the studio and the math changes on that quite a bit, right? Yeah. There's, there are a lot more expectations. How does that impact your relationship to the songwriting and to the album production? Well, for the second album, it was a strange thing because, of course, A, for any musician, people are obsessed by the second album. Mm. You know, you get this mm -hmm. weird thing of everyone saying, oh, and now it's the second album. You get your whole life to do the first one and then you exactly. get a year or two to do the second. Exactly. And that the first one was such a big success, which is also very frightening where you think, well, from there on, uh, it can only go down the hill from now. Sure. And, and how much do I try to recreate the magic of the Absolutely. person? Absolutely. So on that, what's lucky is that because I've done many other businesses for a long time, I've got a good instinct to to know how to fight with me the rest of, of the world i don't really care but i knew that when people were expecting the the biggest hits on the first album was a song called i see you and i knew that everyone was waiting for i see you too i could feel it and i thought this is never gonna happen and i'm never even gonna go there so because in france suddenly i felt like something that had uh, like someone who suddenly had a freedom to record with any producer mm. I wanted to and, and to be able to work with anyone I wanted to. Well, of course, I had the good instinct to have the desire to work with a Canadian producer called Taylor Kirk from Timber Timber, who was the only guy of the list that I contacted who said no. <laughs> and I thought, right, that's the one. I'm going to have Wait, to so go. Let, let, let's back up. So they were out the red carpet for the second one because mm -hmm. the first one is doing well. So you just sit down and compile a list of people that you want to work with? The label does. Okay. And I was listening to um, Timber Timber all the time. And I thought, why am I listening to a list of producers when in fact there is one album and one vinyl that I've been listening to for the last six months and there is a sound in there that I really love. What is the sound? It was a very, very strange, physical, out of time, a slightly crooner landscape. Hmm. It felt like a landscape. It felt like Californian music has a tiny bit too much sunshine for me. 
there's there's landscape, but a tiny bit too much sunshine. Canadian music has the landscape, the forest, the loneliness, and and a little less sunshine, I guess. Sure, a little seasonal depression. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and and on top of it, he was very mysterious. I had seen him on stage, and you could barely see his face, and and I didn't know much about him, and all the little information I had was that he was never going to say yes. And on top of it, I was still am signed with a major with Universal, and that in no way was he ever going to um, work with someone who was a French celebrity signed on a major, you know, and I thought, that's what I want to see. Can the music um, open that door if we take away all of the information he has on me? And and he was a trickster. So he said, well, actually, the only moment where I could eventually see you, because I Skyped him, and he was very spooky. He put the, he put the camera against a blank wall <laughs> and I couldn't see his face and I thought mm, okay and he said I can only see you between Christmas and the new year in Montreal <laughs> okay and he said and, and of course if you plan to come with all your team and whatever you know I don't want to see a team or anyone and I know you won't have the guts to do that and I said sounds like a kidnapping plot yeah absolutely <laughs> meet, me, meet me in the forest absolutely and I thought you know what, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I took my guitar by myself, my, my book of songs, jumped on a plane. He came to pick me up at the Montreal airport. He looked like a psychopath. He had a, mm. he had a pickup with strange sounds at the back. And I nervously giggled saying, are there dead people at the back of the truck? And he gave me a, a very um, strange smile <laughs> and took me to a wonderful studio um, on Van Horn called Hotel to Tango. I met with his band and for four days he tested me me saying you know sing your songs and you would say no that one no that one maybe that one I don't know and after two days we started jamming all mm. together and by the fourth day whether he wanted it or not I knew that it was him that was exactly the sound that I wanted a few days in you're not entirely sure whether this thing is actually going to get made it sounds like no but I but I knew I was I knew that if there was an album, it was going to be with him, whether he wanted it or not. The idea was, how was I going to convince him that it was a good idea? And so I thought, I mustn't give him any time to think, actually. So I rebooked a plane for the 4th or 5th of, of January, and we redid a session of five days, um, rebooked straight away another session of five days. And by the end of those 15 days, I knew I had the album. Was he weeding out a lot of what you had written? He was... No, he was... He was... I always come up with, I guess, 25, 30 mm -hmm. songs, knowing that I like making albums with only 11 or 12. So I knew that it was fine if he was going to trim stuff away and and actually motivated me to write a couple more songs while I was over there. So we or we had the songs by the start of January. We had nearly all the songs. How bare bones is it when you enter the studio? I've got... The melody and um, and the the kind of rhythmic guitar section, the the highways there, the lyrics are there, and the melodies there. Then all the kind of movements around. I'm I'm I know when I want it to get musical in a way. When there's moments where I don't want to sing and I wanted to go somewhere, and so that he took over with his band, and it was it was lovely because we recorded everything live. So you can't be precious about it. You expect that going into it, these things are going to be changed. Yeah. Yeah. And some things, that's exactly why you go there, because that's what collaboration is about. There's many things where you have the instinct to know that it's it's good to be shaken. It's good to be for it to be sometimes broken apart 
to be, you know, re rebuilt. And sometimes you know that you don't want the person to touch it. And and so there were two songs that he changed too much and that I didn't want to change that much. So I went back to Paris and I recorded them by myself and kept them that way. Do you feel like it had an impact on yourself and your songwriting outside of being that specific period? For sure, because I think it was I needed that I needed that validation from myself. I needed to see if 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 I could meet up with another scene also. And because I love the Montreal scene and there's many, many there's music over there that I really, really like. So Patrick Watson does a music that I really like. There's there's loads of people, um Larsa who I adore. There's a sound in common with all those people and that was the gang I wanted to be part of in a way. That was the musical family I wanted to be part of. Is is it something that exists in France, in Paris? And is there a similar scene? Or are you kind of a part of any of the music over there? Not really, because it's, it's, um, in France, it's more complicated because it becomes very quickly professional. Mm. And, and there's an idea which is that we're so judgmental. And we're so hard on ourselves, which, which foreigners, uh, tend to take personally, whether it, when, it's fact, it's not, you know, as soon our kids go to school and by the age of five, you have grades and very harsh grades, you know, you, it's zero out of 20. And I've had teachers who would even give you a minus four out of 20. I mean, it goes that far to really make you feel judged all the time. So, so people tend to say, you know, oh, I don't play the piano. And, and if they say that and you say, oh, come on, they go, no, no, really not. And you say, oh, come on. Most most of the time, it means they've done 16 years of conservatoire. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's no in between. It, it doesn't go with a kind of, it doesn't go with family music. What I love, and that's where I'm very English, is that in every, and I think it's the same um, in America or in Canada, there's an instrument in the house and you're allowed to play it. And the point of playing music is is to sing along and be all together. I mean, that's why we haven't got many karaoke's in France, you know, or you're going to tear the house down or you're never going to even try to sing because because you need to be perfect. Everything needs to be perfect. So So that means we've got professionals who already have... A band. We actually have very few bands. Most of them are singer songwriters who have a backing band who are very professional musicians who are studio musicians. And so you don't get the sense of, of an actual scene. There's some gangs and most of them are independent French singer songwriters. And I've got many friends, um, that are that way and who manage to tour by themselves and who have a, a congregations of friends, but there isn't an actual scene in that sense. So when you did start playing for yourself, did it take a while before you were confident enough to, to show it to people, to play for people? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. For that reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's why I, I would do it like a joke in mm. a way of, of doing it when people were drunk or doing it like a kind of like, Oh, don't worry me. I'll just, you know, sing in the back and the. These weren't necessarily joyful songs that you were playing. Certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you would, you, you would. It depended. I had, I had a very funny song that people loved, which mm. was a song about the fact that my dog was better than my boyfriend. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and it took some time in the song for you to realize that I was talking about a dog and people would bark along. <laughs> and that was that was a song that I actually sang when I went uh, to Cuba once, and I explained the song to to many Cuban women. We had I had a translator, and when they got it, I was saying, you know, the perro is mejor than than the boyfriend, and they all clapped and cheered along and started barking in in Cuban one way or another. And and so there were some songs that were remotely happy, I guess, or at least that you could sing along to. But it was more girls. I had a gang of girls who would say, oh, please sing that song about you waiting all night, or oh, can you please. 
sing that song. So it was it was a kind of um, sad at the end of the dinner kind of thing. So the first show you play is it's it's well attended and people are singing along, and then you know you come to a country like the states where you're less of a known quality, less of a known quantity. Um, is that enjoyable to have to to feel like you have to win an entirely new group of people over? Absolutely. I love that because it's that's part of the fun and and the pleasure that there's something complicated about mm. being known for for many many things. You don't know to what extent people actually are able to have a clear view of your music in a way. That's why as soon as I perform in in other countries I'm I'm always very happy about it and to have to to try and start again. The first gigs that I did in in America were by myself on a guitar to do tiny showcases and things like that and it was terrifying. For sure terrifying and at the the same time i think what's beautiful is that music or that kind of music i guess or or drawing or performing the audience understands how fragile it is and most of the time are extremely um, generous about it i mean it's rare to to go and pay ten dollars to go and see a gig and just you know scream in the back for an hour <laughs> hopefully hopefully i'm always worried that they'd be they, surprised they, exactly <laughs> i'm always worried that someone might but and also because it's because it's quite mad um what i do in the sense that it's so bare people are, are kind of you know curious about it when I did my first round of festivals, I remember when I would sing songs by myself on the guitar. When you have just before you um, Madness, the band, and just after Jamiroquai, and that suddenly you're the mad girl going with the guitar to sing I See You, I can swear that you've got 40,000 people looking at you going, what? And and funnily enough, people are, um, are moved, I guess, by, by the madness of it all. So to speak. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always really impressed by people out there with the guitar because it's it's so much harder you know versus like a nine-piece ska band or you know Absolutely. sort of a, a funk rock band it's it's so much harder to distinguish yourself very hard the songs really kind of have to speak for themselves absolutely absolutely and you have to to grow yourself mm. in a way that suddenly you your songs and yourself um take up some space yeah. hopefully hopefully does, does the um do the monologues does, does the acting does the theater come into play or are you um are you an entertainer at all between songs? Entertainer would be a big word, but uh, but um, you, you speak at least a little bit. Yes, on I step do. no, no, I speak, <laughs> I speak a lot, and I guess that that the thrill for me is that after years of theater, you always have what they call the the fourth wall in mm -hmm. the theater. You're not allowed to 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 look at to the engage, audience. Yeah. You're not allowed to see them. What a thrill for me mm. now to be able to stare. <laughs> people and see what's going on so so it's it's nearly impossible when you hear someone sneeze not to say bless you for example there's there's a great pleasure in that or or to say cheers when you see someone I mean there's something and also I guess that for us all to be able to relax in between songs that sometimes are um, are a bit intense there's something lovely about showing that I mean I think like everyone who's very aware of of the tragedy of life I can be quite funny like like all Tragedy and humor are often linked, I find. Did it come out naturally in, in English when you were using this as a, as a form of catharsis, as almost therapy, mm -hmm. airing your grievances? Um, the songs just came out in, in English? They did because it, for sure that the music that I was always turned on by mm. was, was Anglo-Saxon music, I guess. That at home, um, I was raised by my English mum, where funnily enough, the French are, and I do love the French, don't get me wrong, by, by 
pointing out all of our all of our dark sides. But but funny enough, um, French people are so bad with English that、mm. it became a secret language <laughs> with my mum. So we could talk in bars and cafes, and no one would ever know what we were talking about because it was that secret language. And and with my son, it's been our secret language too. And so it's it's linked to、um, intimacy in a yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I think English is just so. Pervasive across the world, that in a lot of cultures, there's almost a point of pride to not speaking it. Yes, yeah, for sure, for、yeah. sure, that people are very happy. And on top of it, French language is absolutely beautiful, and we've got wonderful authors, and we've got wonderful music with authors. That's it's more poetry with music in France. It's, it's always kind of a grasses. Greener situation, but we tend to think of French as being a more beautiful lyrical language that could perhaps lend itself better to music in that way. Well, there's good points and bad points about it. For example, it's a very hard language to actually actually sing.、Mm. People talk it more than they sing. And if you look at the opera, for example, you've got many operas in Italian, many operas in German, very few in French, because the way the words are, are set up, we finish our sentences by going down.、Mm. We're always closing、uh, the meaning and 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 closing the literally the vibration of words. So that's why people who sing French the best or who actually sing it mostly are Canadian singers. Who, funny enough, I think have the music of the American language、mm. and use the French words. That's why Celine Dion can powerfully sing French. Otherwise, you won't find many French people who actually sing. In French, they talk in French. They kind you can rap in French. You can you can yeah. It's more like poetry. And when you think of Jacques Brel, or when you think of of Dutron, or when you think of Gainsbourg, or when you think of Brassens, they're not actually singing it because it's it's nearly impossible to sing. And also, and whereas English is extremely singable. Especially pop,、mm. there's something where the sounds、um, are rounder, and you, and you can stretch them in a way where French words there's such a rhythm in it that you would have a hard time stretching words without it becoming just gibberish in a way. And on top of it, what I love about writing in English is that in in French we're obsessed by gender, so you. You would find yourself in a hard situation to try and put two sentences in a row without、mm. denouncing the fact that you're a woman or a man, and denouncing the fact that you're addressing a woman or a man. What I love about English is is that there is you can do three minutes of a song where whether if you whether you're a boy or a girl, it's not going to change much. Sure, or if it's a dog or a boyfriend. Absolutely, absolutely, which I find wonderful. <laughs> so, so it makes it a little more universally accessible, and that people can kind of project their own. Ideas onto it and mysterious,、yeah. which is what I like.、Mm-hmm. I like the idea that that I can sing about something extremely specific. Which is funny how most people think that songs are love songs, and I can have songs about people in my family where it's got nothing to do with a love song, and people hear them. But you're comfortable talking about them, and when people ask ask you questions about them specifically, you'll answer them. I will to a certain degree、yeah. because I well. What I love the most, and 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 when I do promotion, that's what cracks me up. Is to you know, if I do fifteen interviews in the day, it's really funny what I hear because people's be- personal interpretations. Absolutely,、yeah. songs are like mirrors、mm. in a way. You know, people see themselves in them, and so sometimes I have the the most crazy、uh, visions of people who say stuff, and and you really don't want to to bring them back to what it really was about because it's that's what's that's what I love so much about music and so much about literature that it's it is nearly a conversation between. Between two people, 
you have to you have to be active when you listen to a song. You project something on it. The same when you know, even when you're reading Proust, even if he does four pages to describe a specific face, we will not see the same face, both of us. And mm. and that's the magic that I love. That sometimes moves me more than in movies, for example, where you you're actually stuck with the real people, or in the theatre, in literature, and in music, you can you can fantasize whatever you want, even to the extent of hearing words that are not the actual words. You know, when I was a little girl, mm. because I'm called Lou, I heard when I was very small and I guess extremely um, ego, an egomaniac and delusional, I thought that every song was about me because I kept on hearing um, Lou everywhere. Each time there was you, I would hear mm. Lou. So suddenly it's all over baby Lou <laughs> and nearly all of the Beatles was written for mm-hmm. me when I was a little girl. Love, I, love me, Lou. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I was like, wow, that's insane. All of these songs yeah. about me, you know. And- well, that, 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 you know, that sort of... Um, those qualities are probably useful when you're first going into acting and modeling, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, with two parents who were very much in, in the public eye, did did they try to dissuade you? Obviously, they've both seen the downsides to mm-hmm. all of these fields. Mm-hmm. Did they try to steer you in a different direction? My my father, who's got um, a good instinct, when I started wanting, wanting to be an actress, um, made me go for a very harsh casting to do one of his movies and when I got the role decided to change the dialogue the night before made it into a very very long monologue that I learnt all night long I think I was nine or ten years old it's like having your your father as um like a, a soccer coach exactly he's, you know he's he's gonna push you harder than the other kids exactly and he got me on set the next day and put the camera four centimeters away from my face the whole crew was around I missed my mark the first time then the second time I got confused in the words and he stood up and um, took me by the collar and in front of everyone said um, in a very rude French way get your gear and get the hell out of here you're not capable of being an actress so that was first movie then three years later I tried again he wouldn't three years of you just not going back out at all no and and how old were you at the time at the time so the first time i was nine and the second time i was 13 and uh or 14 i think and i i got uh to the casting he refused to to have me um do the lines and i managed to seduce the casting director in 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 at least doing a tape of me so that he would show uh my father you know there are other directors out there right but i i have the good instinct (laughs) he's known to be the harshest one i see and to be the hardest one. And and I wanted to, to try with, mm. you know, obviously with him. And so I got the role, except he told me only two weeks before the movie saying, so what are you doing this summer apart from doing that movie? And mm. that's how I learned I was doing it. And uh, and then after three weeks of, of being in the set and of him screaming against me and having by the end the whole crew on my side. And there was a very long scene. He's, he's known to do tedious long scene so it was a nine minute scene with 10 pages of dialogue and he said you come in you're pissed off in the middle you burst into tears and at the end you leave laughing motor camera rolling so i thought you bloody (laughs) and managed to do it and got half of the film crew in tears and he didn't even say a word he said well he said passable which in french Mm -hmm. means you know We'll move on. You don't know if it's good or if it's bad. And uh, and at the end of, of the film said, so you really want to do this job? Yeah. And he said, I've tried every trick in the book to get you disgusted by it. So good luck. Yeah. 
And that's how I started working with other directors. So that was 12 or 13 years old. And, and you, le- you left school relatively early, right? Yeah. To pursue it yeah. full time. So yeah. that, there was what, a three year? Well, after, after his, that? yeah, after his movie, I did, um, I did another movie a couple of months later that uh, was an enormous success in mm. France. So suddenly I got many propositions and yeah, by the age of 15 and a half, I was, I was doing movies back to back. By that point, after everything had been thrown at you, they were supportive of the idea of you leaving school and really just diving. He wasn't, in. but he okay. was, he was he, funny he, when he didn't dissuade you. No, but, but as soon as I got my first check from, from a movie, mm. he said, so are you attending not to do um, studies? And I said, no, I think I want to be an actress. And he said, well, pack your stuff and leave then. And which I did. And and he has a good ego and he knows me and he knows I've got one. And at the door, he said, you'll never make it. You'll come back here. And of course, I never came back. Mm-hmm. I know, fortunately, in, in a position where you don't have to choose one. But do you primarily think of yourself as a musician? I think that if I had to choose, um, I do believe that it took me a long time to accept that uh, that we only live once. And mm. and if we get to do as many things as we want to do, that's a good thing. And and it's a good thing um, for ourselves. And, and then if other people like it or not, that's... <laughs> That's another question, but it's out of my hands in a way. But the job that do that does, I guess, um, go through all of the others is is music in the mm. sense that it goes with my pleasure of literature, my yeah. pleasure of words that I can find in the theatre. It goes through the pleasure of of being on stage and performing like one would in the theatre. It goes with the idea of embracing a persona, which has to do with with movies and and so in a way. And you do meet the public and you are able to to, um, uh, collaborate with people who take you further. So all of that combined, it is what I love in all of the different jobs that I do. So suddenly it's, it's, yeah, if, if someone for an awful reason said you're only allowed to do one thing from now on, then yes, it would be uh, to, to write and sing. It's interesting at the beginning of the conversation, you were framing it in terms of this three-year cycle. So it does sound like the plan is to keep just keep doing this for hmm. a while. Yeah. Although you did say that the schedule is sort of switching up on the next one. Is that right? Now I shall be performing past the festivals and mm. and till December. So, And what's nice is to also, I think that all of the industries are changing a lot and that um, there's new ways of, of doing this. And I know that will I be um, touring then by myself and writing at the same time, mm. for example, or writing songs that I can perform in a local bar or pub to see how they work before going to record them. I mean, all of those ideas would are now coming up. I think that uh, that many artists are moving out of this kind of, you know, um, um, recording, promoting, touring, recording, promoting, touring. I think we can switch it around yeah. and have a bit more, bit more fun with it now. You worked with multiple producers on the mm-hmm. last record. Yeah, obviously you liked the the process of working with a single producer and the way that that shaped that one. So why why switch it up in this way? Because I realized that when you work with one producer, it has to do. It becomes a little bit like a movie in the sense that we all project stuff on each other. And when you work with one producer, you realize that a producer does project something mm. on you. And when I recorded the first album, the songs were exactly the way I write them. But the first producer, Etienne Dao, I think fantasized me as a kind of old soul singer or maybe a kind of, um, I don't know, a vintage, folky American girl. I saw people comparing you to Nina Simone, which is a pretty hard thing to live up to on your first record. That's, that's very hard. 
hard, but but people were um, yeah. There was something he used to, to to compare the kind of broken voice to a Karen Dalton and people like that. So I think he fantasized that. When I worked with Taylor, I think he fantasized me more as a kind of blues, um, a kind of dark a mixture of blues and maybe a kind of Nico. I mean, it's an interesting way to put it. Sort of fantasize you as something as though as though you're almost someone else's muse. But this is your work, and you you want these to be to be your songs you know do you feel having done this for as long as you have that you have that sort of defined quality that you're able to to steer that or how much of it is still in the hands of the producers to kind of shape the the sound well it's a half and a half because they haven't got a choice in the sense that since the songs are already written and yeah. the melodies are already there it's really the kind of finishing touch mm. in a way it's like um yes it's it's really the finishing touch but that's what we see when we listen to 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 singer songwriters for example you recognize the work of of different producers because they do tend to bring you somewhere um and and to kind of put a varnish on it all so most of it resembles you. I mean, when I sing uh, with a guitar by myself songs from the first or the second album, you can hear that they're already there and they're very close to me. But then the the, the orchestration, I guess, or the sound of, of the elements around you are, are fantasized by a producer, and especially for my first album, because I had never done that. So I, I didn't find myself in a position where I could say like, oh, no, I think it would sound better, you know, on a, on a, on a Fender as opposed to, you know, yeah. that. But I had no idea. So I would as long as it sounded all right and that i and that i didn't feel like it was cheating my music i was pretty giddy and happy that someone would take it somewhere and and make um um a full orchestration with it second album taylor took it somewhere else where i think he saw me and i must have been at the time in a darker zone so he saw me i think really as a kind of nearly um yeah nico-esque kind of uh, uh dramatic by herself on a guitar i i have to ask you you know having been a fan of for a long time what what a cat power brings to the table well um for the third one that was the thing where i thought how do i how do i start off in a position that means that i will in a way force producers to work in a direction that i'm a, a bit more so for that one i started off by recording everything with just drums and vocals and then adding just a tiny bit of electric guitar to kind of go nearly against my vocals and then send that to producers to work with. There was one song that I loved exactly as it was and it was It's You that was with an acoustic guitar and the voice and I thought I don't want this song to be in the hands of any producers because it resembles the song Weekend a Baby on the second album which Taylor had tried to produce and Etienne Dao had tried to produce and neither of them managed because I think it was just pretty in the way that it was just a voice and a guitar. Because the third album was starting to be very colourful and, and very um, produced one way or another, I thought, it's you will never hold up in the middle of this. Why would it be there if it's just a voice in guitar? And I thought, aha, if I find someone to sing it with me, then suddenly it comes through a royal door of being allowed to stand in the middle of all of the others and maybe even be a revealer of the others by being exactly how songs start off by being just guitar and voice. And so I thought, I would like it to be a girl. Because I'd never done a duo with anyone, and I thought I would I would like to start with a girl. First girl I thought about was was Sean, was Cat Power, and so I sent her an email and um, and sent her the song. And to my great uh, pride and happiness, she answered. And she was finishing her album, starting her tour, had no time to spare, 
And so I told her, I said, well, listen to the song and then you'll see if you find the time or not. And, and she heard the song and, and was very thrilled by it, which I was very proud and about. And, and so she, I sent her the stems. I sent her the, the pro tool session and, uh, and she recorded in, in California by herself. And she recorded, um, a harmonica and she recorded, uh, a bit of a piano and had this wonderful idea, which proves that sometimes it's better not to be around and, and not to be telling people what to do. She, I thought we would sing it like a duo. I thought she would take away some of the, you know, moments where I was singing to sing in herself. And in fact, she had this wonderful idea of becoming 20 women around me who keep on, you know, gliding above, below and, and going right through me. And, and, uh, she sent me that sec session back and I thought, that's it. It worked. It can be part of the album now. So it sounds like you're in a much better place now mentally than you were when you first started writing what became that first album? Well, it's always nice to suddenly, um, you need to, and it's quite normal, you need to start off by being an apprentice one way or another. And I just mean uh, emotionally, you were in a, you were sort of in a rough transitory spot. But it all goes together. Yeah. You know, as soon as you learn a craft and you start to, to enjoy that and, and know that you're able to, to talk about it and, and, and find producers and know why you're finding them and, and telling them what you want them to do and, and become, especially being a woman, it's quite fun when you're working with, with men all the time yeah. to, to suddenly have the guts to say, I don't like those drums, <laughs> which took some time to be able to say. And all of this puts you in a position of empowerment where, of course, it has an effect on your personal life and the other way too. So the person Personal life is better because the professional life is better, and the professional life is better because the personal life is better. It's all a circle. That was Lou Doyon. Her new record, Soliloquy, is out now on Universal. Really wonderful conversation. Thanks so much to her for coming into my office. Taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify and YouTube now, like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And that's about all we got for this week, so stick around because we are going to be back in a few days with another episode of RIYL.